welcome to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Now, I know I'm going to catch a lot of flack for this. Oh, God. Because I catch a lot of flack for it every year. But it's August, and that means it is now Halloween. Yeah, listeners, she is one of those people. Spooky season is upon us, baby. Well, they have already started putting out the Halloween candy. Yeah, I sent Clay a picture actually from the grocery store this afternoon of a massive Halloween display in Lowe's Foods. It is time. So, yeah, I think there's really no denying it. And I want to celebrate that, obviously, by telling you a spooky story. And you know what? Go ahead and cue up that Neil Diamond, because I'm coming at you with yet another Massachusetts story. Have you ever heard of the Bridgewater Triangle? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. This is actually something that your stepdad, Jeff, and I have talked about before. Oh. Um, I mean, it's, you know, something I was familiar with also. But just for some context, um, your stepdad, who is from Massachusetts, yep. he, he knows all about this. So you can, you can ask him. This is not just me being a nut. But there is so much stuff to cover here. That this is actually going to be a two-part episode. Oh my gosh. Yeah, boy. I can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Bridgewater Triangle is about a 200 square mile area. The actual points of the triangle are Rehoboth in the west, Abington in the north, and Freetown in the east. And this is going to be more in eastern Massachusetts. Not like the middle of the state, but more towards, you know. Closer towards the coast. Okay. Um, inside the triangle, you have Taunton, Raynham, Berkeley, Dighton, Brockton, Easton, Norton, Mansfield, and of course, the three Bridgewaters. And this means something to someone, probably from the state. Yeah. Oh, it certainly does. And to me, because I have been to almost every single town I just named. And to me, I, I, I have not. It gives you nothing. But, you know, if, if you are listening and you're like, what? Um, you can just, you know, put in those names. There you go. There's there's the Bridgewater Triangle. Um, I so I've as I said, I've been to a few of them myself because my best friend lives in Plymouth County, which is kind of right there on the outskirts of it. And she's also the director of a library in West Bridgewater, which is obviously in the Bridgewater Triangle. So okay. I've I've been to a few few places inside the triangle, but I've never gone specifically because of all the freaky stuff. Um, and I haven't personally had any freaky experiences there, but I am always willing to go back and spend some more time. Um, I think I've really only even been in the daytime to more of like the urban areas and stuff. So I'm sure that has a lot to do with it. Hmm. Um, let me tell you what, though. I am in the minority on that one as far as people who have been to the triangle and not had something a little bit funky happen to them. Okay. This place is a hot spot. And I mean, it's called that. Of course, as a reference to the Bermuda Triangle, which, right. you know, famously wild stuff happens there. Supposedly. Yes. Don't be rude to me. That is so <laughs> rude. <laughs> the Bridgewater Triangle can boast just about every sort of paranormal encounter you can think of. So we've got massive magical snakes, UFOs, Bigfoot sightings, ghosts, thunderbirds, 
everything, pretty much. And according to local paranormal expert Jeff Bellinger, the Bridgewater Triangle, I think per square foot, we've got more weirdness here than the Bermuda Triangle could hold a candle to. And the reason, of course, is so much history. Okay. Now, is this history related to Bigfoot? Or is Bigfoot sort of... Did he get sort of tied in uh, unwillingly? Um, the history is things that like are indisputable truths that actually happened. Whereas Bigfoot sightings happening more recently, uh, up for debate, of course. I, I, I'm curious because it it seems to run the gambit. Oh, of- there's there's a they got a little bit of everything. Is this is like the paranormal mambo number five? <laughs> like a little bit of Bigfoot, a little bit of puckwudgies, a little bit of Thunderbirds, what have you. Yeah. So a lot of people consider King Philip's War to be the starting point for all of this stuff. So that was a nearly three year long conflict that began in 1675 between New England colonists and the indigenous people who lived in the area. Um, led by Metacomet of the Wampanoags. Now, if you're like, wait a minute now, I've heard of the Wampanoags before. Um, well, that's because they're the folks who allegedly celebrated the first Thanksgiving with the colonists in Plymouth. Okay. Yeah, so that's those guys. You are familiar with them, yeah. whether you realize it or not. But that relationship soured, like to put it mildly, when you guessed it, the colonizers started stealing their land. Yeah eventually forcing large groups of Native Americans into an area of land now known as the Hockamock Swamp. Now remember that name, because we'll certainly be talking about that swamp more later on. Back to King Philip's War, though. It's generally considered to be the deadliest war of the entire colonial American period. Like, between, you know, the Virginia Company getting there in the 1500s and the Declaration over 200 years later... Mm -hmm. This is the deadliest war in that, you know, 200 year period Dang. of time. Yeah. Approximately 75% of the indigenous population of Massachusetts and 25% of the colonists were killed either in battle or when their communities were raided. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's really bad. Uh, by the end of the war, the Wampanoags and their allies were almost completely destroyed. Although there were nearly a thousand more deaths on the colonial side. It was just a matter of numbers. There were more colonists at that point. Right. Uh, Metacomet himself was shot and killed in Bristol, Rhode Island. He was then drawn and quartered and then beheaded. Mm. His head was placed on a pike in the center of Plymouth where it stood for 20 years. 20 years? 20 years his head was up on a spike. Gross. Yes, it is. Um, But just, you know, to... Make things a little, like, slap a Band-Aid on uh, this gaping wound here. There is a statue of um, Massasoit, like, on, who was the original leader of the Wampanoags um, during, like, when the Pilgrims landed. There's a statue of him now in approximately the same place where Metacomet's head was displayed. So there's now, like, a okay. nice tribute to, uh, still pretty. Yeah, pretty, pretty bad. bad. Um, so natives who managed to survive but were captured were sold into slavery. Sure. So even yeah. if you survived, um, you were not having a good time ever again. Yeah, unsurprisingly. Yeah. And needless to say, that's going to create a lot of bad energy. So while some people believe the war resulted in a Native American curse being put on the land, 
Other paranormal experts in the region believe that King Philip's war and the utter destruction that resulted from it were actually caused by whatever nefarious energy resides in the Bridgewater Triangle. So a lot of people consider it a chicken or the egg situation. Did this horrible massacre like kind of curse this land or did this horrible massacre occur because this land is cursed? Okay. It's just, you know, there's debate. Um, I should say too, um, gross, that the reason it was called King Philip's War is because these ratchet pilgrim colonists couldn't simply live and let live. Uh, they had to force their religion and their culture on the natives, despite the whole freedom of religion thing that they said they wanted. Yeah. Like many Americans today, the pilgrims believed freedom of religion only applies to Christians. Um, and they tried to force their beliefs and their laws onto everyone else. Super familiar. Uh, so all that to say, they didn't respect Metacomet enough to call him by his name and instead referred to him as King Philip. They gave him a Christian name. Oh, I see. To make him sound more respectable. Right. So, yeah. Moving on from that horrible bit of information. Um, I'm going to start us off with something you'll find a little more palatable as the resident Scully on this podcast. Okay. And that is some of the unusual rocks found in the triangle. Ooh. Getting deep into some geology uh, here. I believe they're called minerals. <laughs> Stop it. Okay. These actually are rocks. These oh, are okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so you won't love this per se, honey. Oh. But for people whose beliefs... Yeah, so I should preface this. You'll like this more because it's like geological-ish, um, but that's just because you'll like it more than me talking about UFOs and Bigfoot. So I, I, not to say that you're going to be totally <laughs> on board with what's to come, but just actually more palatable. I actually like Bigfoot. I mean, he seems like a chill dude, or does he? We'll see. Well, he hasn't been... Uh, he hasn't been implicated in any crimes as he may not exist. Um, or has he? You haven't heard the rest of the episode yet. Oh. Yeah. There's well, law enforcement involvement. Well, I would like to see the charges and, <laughs> and I would like to see the defendant. <laughs> okay. But I like Bigfoot because he, he you don't have to, he, if he exists mm-hmm. or she. Yeah, don't be right. Don't the, be. If, if the big feet exist. <laughs> There's no supernatural. They're just, they're just essentially monkey men. That's the thing about cryptids, really. Yeah. It could be supernatural. Maybe it's not. Let's talk about rocks, though. Let's do it. Right now. We're going to get back to these rocks. Okay. So for people whose beliefs lean more toward metaphysical stuff, like myself, um, it's thought that stones of all kinds are prone to retaining energy. So, like, that's where you get a lot of the beliefs around certain crystals being good for attracting or repelling certain things, right? Like, amethyst is good for this. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the belief that certain rocks retain certain energy. You you with me? I'm following. Okay, you're just staring at me like I am the worst. Well, I am the scully. Yeah, uh, I mean... yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, but this is also a theme you'll see repeated in hauntings. So it's not just crystals and minerals, um, but where buildings were made of stone, mm-hmm. like those buildings tend to have a stronger connection to energies of the past. It's so like, for instance, a building made out of limestone is much more likely to have pronounced paranormal activity than a similar building made out of wood. 
Okay. Is is the belief. So just something to keep in mind going forward with all these spooky rocks. So first we have Anawan Rock in Rehoboth, which you remember is the northern tip of the triangle. Okay. If you want to check it out, guys, um, it'll be on our Instagram. And Clay, I'm going to show you a photo. Oh. All right. So this is Anawan Rock. Okay. Just kind of a... Nice rock. A large boulder. Yeah. So that site, Anawan Rock, ties directly into King Philip's War. About two weeks after Metacomet was killed, his successor, Anawan, was captured and surrendered to Captain Benjamin Church in the hope of being spared. Mm-hmm. Naturally, Church killed him right away, sure. thus officially ending the war. So this place, Anawan Rock, is like where King Philip's War finally ended after about three years. Okay. According to legend, Anawan surrendered the Wampanoag Wampum Belt which was the tribe's most sacred possession. It was a beautiful piece of beadwork that depicted the entire history of the tribe. And he surrendered it to Benjamin Church. So while nobody is totally sure what Church did with the wampum belt, most believe that it was destroyed and pieces of it were handed out to his men as trophies. Sure. Yeah. So again, this is a place associated with the war that has like a lot of really bad vibes. In the hundreds of years since Anawan's murder, there's been a lot of paranormal activity around this boulder, particularly ghosts and phantoms. Many, many people for centuries have recorded seeing phantom fires in this area, seeing the smoke rising up through the trees. But when they go to get a closer look, there's absolutely nothing there. Hmm. People also report seeing shadow figures moving through the trees and sometimes standing on the rock itself. And still other people have heard like an accompanying, I can't say that word, accompanying. Why? Why is this accompanying? Accompanying. You know what? So the figures were accompanied by the sounds of frantic drumming and cries of Utah, which means stand and fight in the Mm. Wampanoag language. Next up is Dighton Rock, a 40-ton boulder that was discovered in Berkeley and is covered in mysterious symbols. Mysterious symbols. Symbols. So here, I'm going to zoom in on this one for you, but here's like Dighton Rock. Okay. I mean, obviously something has happened to this rock here. For hundreds of years, it sat at the mouth of the Taunton River, like right where it spills into Mount Hope Bay. And Mount Hope Bay, of course, goes like right into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And with the writing um, or drawing like on the rock was facing outward, like making it look like a message to incoming ships. So anybody coming into the bay is going to see the writing on this rock. The earliest written record of Dighton Rock goes all the way back to 1680 when it was spotted by a man named John Danforth. Danforth made a detailed drawing of Dighton Rock, but it only shows the symbols carved in the upper portion, implying that the rest of it was hidden underwater at the time, like by the tides or whatever. Even once you see the rock in its entirety, nobody has been able to interpret its meaning or determine who made the carvings in the first place. The mysterious bit of communication became a subject of intense fascination. I mean, of course it did. Um, To the point where even historical villain Cotton Mather wrote about Dighton Rock. 
One of the primary theories, uh, the Occam's Razor candidate, which I'm sure you will prefer, is that the work was done by a Native American and that it depicts a battle that took place nearby after the arrival of a ship. Makes total sense given the time period and the region, right? Sure. There are dozens of other theories, though, with people giving credit uh, for the rock to the ancient Phoenicians. So, you know, if you come across a mysterious rock in the bay that can't be interpreted, thank the Phoenicians. Was this just all a lead up to that? I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> but as soon as I saw the word Phoenicians, I was like, oh, that's going in. And for those not in the know, uh, that is a deep cut Walt Disney World reference. Yeah. And I will not apologize for it. Other theories on Dighton Rock's origins give credit to the Vikings or to visitors from Carthage, Portugal, China, Japan, or, duh, outer space. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Obvious. Still, others believe that no one person or group of people are responsible for the carvings on Dighton Rock and that some or all of the groups I've just mentioned had a hand in it. The rock was moved into a nearby shelter in the 1960s to protect it from further erosion and make it easier to study. And there are now plaques surrounding it that highlight how like this part here looks like Native American drawings, whereas this part here looks like the Phoenician alphabet and so on and so forth. Because there are genuinely like archaeologists have come and looked at it and it's like this really does look like it's from a completely different alphabet or like this is more of like a hieroglyph than anything else. Like it's really interesting to so, have all the, the plaques there for you to compare. So it could be a little bit of a, maybe like a Rosetta stone. That's exactly what I have in my notes. It could almost be its own little Rosetta stone. Oh, oh. how cool. Yeah. But you know, despite hundreds of years of folks studying this rock, we still don't actually know that much about it. Okay. Then there is Profile Rock in Freetown. It's a lot of rocks. Yeah, I know. Well, so this one, sadly, no longer looks this way. But for hundreds of years, it looked like this. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks like, like very clearly like the side profile of a man. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like almost looks like it was carved to be that way. Um, but it wasn't. Right. Uh, so this one is located in Freetown State Park. And a lot of people for many years have thought that it depicted Chief Massasoit, the one who I mentioned was the leader of the Wampanoag um, when the pilgrims arrived. He's obviously a crucial figure in American history. But like I said, this is not a Mount Rushmore situation where his face was intentionally carved. But it also wasn't a naturally occurring formation either. It's believed that the profile appeared after dynamite was used on the site in the mid-1800s. Oh. The boulder only partially crumbled after the explosion, leaving a near-perfect profile in the rock that strongly resembles drawings of Chief Massasoit from the time that he was alive. Wow. As a result, it became a sacred site to the Wampanoags and other indigenous people living in the area, almost like the chief speaking to them from beyond the grave, like reclaiming this as native land in a way that was not at all subtle. Like Anawan Rock, Profile Rock has also had tons and tons of reports of phantom fires over the years, as well as will-o'-the-wisps or ghost lights. Yeah. So for those unfamiliar, a ghost light is basically what it sounds like. It's a light source that isn't corporeal, like it doesn't actually exist in our realm. And it resembles like a flickering lantern or like a smaller light source like that, as opposed to the larger fires that have been seen here and at Dighton Rock. 
The most famous sighting at Profile Rock, though, was the ghost of a man who was seen sitting on top of the rock with his legs crossed and his arms held open to the sky. Another place related to the Wampanoag's history that has phantom fires, phantom drums, ghost lights, and an inexplicable chill in the air all year long is King Philip's Cave. This is a small cave in modern-day Norton where a metacomet would take cover throughout the war and it's also where he spent some of his final nights the last stop in our tour of spooky rocks because there's always room for one more right is the solitude stone of west bridgewater which has a whole entire poem carved into it wow yeah so like that probably took a lot of work and then here is kind of a is what that looks like it almost looks like a giant gravestone yeah yeah kind of but it's just just the giant boulder that has some some carving in it. This one is located right off of Forest Street and was originally part of a natural bridge over Town River known as Comfort Bridge. The inscription was made by Reverend Timothy Otis Payne of New Church of Jerusalem, which is an interesting mix of like Christianity and occultism. Oh. Yeah. So their whole philosophy and whatever was based on the teaching and beliefs of Emanuel Swedenborg, who also inspired Freemasonry, to give you an idea of like the kind of occulty stuff I'm talking about. Uh, So there's some spooky mysticism involved just based on that alone. The inscription reads, All ye who in future days walk by Nucketesset stream, love not him who hummed his lay cheerful to the parting beam but the beauty that he wooed in this quiet solitude. Neat. Yeah. Sorry to all of our geologist listeners, but we are now concluding the rock-based portion of this episode. Well, Sarah, let me tell you, that rocked. I am furious. (laughs) I am so mad at you. But you know what? I'm still going to tell you this amazing little history fact. Ooh. The first ever documented ufo sighting in history was in 1639 in the bridgewater triangle Ooh! the sighting was recorded by john winthrop governor of the massachusetts bay colony on march 1st again 1639 he reported that three of his men had been canoeing when they spotted a huge light in the sky according to winthrop when it stood still, it flamed up and was about three yards square. When it ran, it was contracted into the figure of a swine. A swine? Yeah. They reportedly continued seeing this light for like two to three hours and described its movement as being swift and straight as an arrow. When the light finally disappeared, the witnesses were shocked and confused to find themselves more than a mile away from where they remembered being. Well, they're probably just so shocked at seeing this thing. Right, they just, like the, the current. Just, yeah. just kinda... <laughs> wait a minute, what time is it? Where, where staring are Staring up at the sky for three hours and being like, wait, we're not where we were? What? I can't blame them. That That's would be weird. crazy. Well, especially when you're like hundreds of years away from electricity existing. Yeah, because I guess the only thing they could, they could compare it to is some sort of, um, you know. Like a fire in the sky. Like, like, like a... Yeah, like a like a shooting star mm-hmm. or something like that, but obviously they saw something that wasn't. Well, they they claim they saw something that wasn't exactly like that. Something totally different, right? Very strange. Yeah. So to that end, the next thing I want to discuss is the Raynham Taunton dog track. 
okay, you have a look on your face like I should know what this is. No, just kind of like, it's a hard left turn from like an alien sighting in the 1600s. Um, now we're going to talk about a dog track, which I imagine is not what you were expecting me to say. Well, I wasn't expecting aliens either, but... <laughs> you should always expect aliens. But yeah, so there was a dog track in Raynham that closed in 2009, and the track itself and the surrounding woods have seen far more than its fair share of paranormal activity over the years, predominantly UFO sightings, a recurrence of ghost lights that appear every January, and puckwudgies. Now, what is that? Puckwudgies. I'm so glad you asked. Uh, I first heard about them on an episode of And That's Why We Drink, Mm -hmm. where M told us all about puckwudgies, and it sounds wild and silly. Uh, But basically, they're a feature of Wampanoag folklore. The name Puckwudgie translates to little wild man of the woods that vanishes. Is, wow. Is, uh, so it's <laughs> yeah, so it's a pretty descriptive name. Like, yeah. Like, as the name implies, Puckwudgies are small humanoid creatures. Think smaller than a hobbit, like two feet tall or so. Like a like a leprechaun or a gnome or something like that? Or about the size of our, our three-year-old. Well, it sounds like... like um... Like something like that from, from yeah, folklore. Sure. Well, they can shapeshift. Oh. So if they wanted to look like a leprechaun or a gnome, they certainly could. Oh. They can also disappear at will. Yeah. I mean, even more badass, they can wield magic, create fires, shoot poison arrows, and they frequently lure people to their deaths siren style. These but guys can do it all. Really, they can. And, and only two feet tall? My God, short king. for the most part though they're considered more mischievous than malevolent unless you annoy them so try not to do that don't like talk about their size probably is good first step physically they're said to look like a porcupine from the back and a cross between a human and a troll from the front which is honestly really rude that's weird yeah well Believe it or not, I couldn't find a photograph of a puck wedgie, but here's an artist rendering that you are simply going to love. Wow. <laughs> it looks like it's from D&D, right? It really does. It looks like a D&D character, yeah, but this, it looks I'm pretty sure, pretty sure this is in 5E. This is in the 5E handbook, I'm, I'm fairly certain. Well, this is definitely going to be on the Instagram, so you can follow along with some of these yeah, pictures. A, a thousand percent. I might not post all of the rocks, because um, yeah, you, you get it, but yeah. you will be seeing that puck wedgie, because he, he is quite a handsome boy. It's a weird thing, right? It's, I mean, I'm trying not to annoy them. I will say it is unusual. So the most well-known report of a Puckwudgie sighting obviously happened at the dog track and involves a local man named Bill Russo who was taking his dog, Samantha, (laughs) for a walk at night in the woods around the track. He spotted what he thought was a little kid wearing a weird furry costume just on its own standing under a streetlight right at the edge of the woods. Okay. It beckoned toward him and repeatedly said, Iwachu, here. Iwachu, Kier, just over and over. Samantha is a good girl, and she was freaking out. So yeah. Russo gave up trying to communicate with this weird kid because he was like, "What are you saying? I don't understand." And just like, because it sounded like they're trying to speak English, but like not really communicating well and whatever. So he gives up because Samantha is very unhappy, and they head home. On the walk, it dawns on him though 
that he actually encountered a Pukwudgie and that it was trying to say, we want you, come here. How did he realize this? Because I guess he's just saying it over and over in his head. And just like you're walking home, it's like quiet because it's almost midnight out. You're just thinking your thoughts and you're just like, you want you, here. Wait, what? Oh, we want you here. But how did he realize it was a it was a little goblin. Because why? Don't be so rude. Okay, it's okay. It's a puckwudgie. Because why would it be a child alone in a weird furry spiky costume? Well, I suppose, but wouldn't he have realized that at the time? Not necessarily. Because so, so, so so think it's pitch black out. Yeah. If someone is standing directly under a streetlight, there's going to be shadows all over their freaking face. Sure. So it'd be hard to make out features, and I think it could be easily misconstrued and these were things that had been around for since the, i mean this is wampanoag folklore okay Puckwudgie, so, he, so. so he was familiar with it yes already yes okay and i just gotta say no offense to this man yeah. but no thank you no thank you no thank you we want you come here yeah no nah. it's a no from me yeah where i'm going agree. to sorry I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. Okay. Where I'm going to wrap up for today is with another story at the dog track, this time in the spring of 1979. Air Force veterans Jerry Lopez and Steve Sbracchia, who were both on-air reporters for WHDL at the time, were headed to the dog track for a night out to bet on the races. As they drove along Highway 106, they spotted a huge bright light hovering over the treetops in the area near the track. The light seemed to be getting closer and getting bigger, so Steve asked Jerry to pull over so that they can get a better look at it. As Steve later told the local ABC affiliate, all of a sudden the stars blotted out in the shape of an arrow as this thing passed overhead. Ironically, being a baseball fan, it looked like a baseball home plate to me, and there were a series of lights on it. It was very, very wide, perhaps the width of five 747s wing to wing. It looked like it had a cord or something hanging off it, and sparks were coming off it. I almost felt like I could throw a rock at the thing. It seemed that close to me. For me, what first attracted me was this light that kind of came into our field of vision, And as this thing passed overhead, it just kept coming and coming and coming, and the light kept getting bigger and bigger. I'm an Air Force veteran. I've been in the Air Force for four and a half years. I've been around a number of different planes, and I said to Steve, that is not one of ours. Mm. Yeah. It's worth noting that before this happened to him, Steve Sprachia considered himself to be 100% a skeptic when it comes to aliens and UFOs and stuff like that. He went on to say... I thought anybody who ever saw these things, they were either crazy or publicity hounds, or there was just something wrong with them in their head. To me, the fact that they were both reporters lends a lot of credence to the story, because like he said, a lot of people who claim to see UFOs in the past were looking for their 15 minutes. But we're talking about a couple of guys who are already in the media spotlight every day because of their jobs. Right. Plus, Jerry and Steve weren't the only ones to witness this phenomenon. Over the course of the following week, dozens of reports poured in that perfectly aligned with what the two of them saw. It was only after they saw these other reports in the papers and heard them discussed on the radio that Jerry and Steve came forward and added their own story. A sketch artist interviewed several of the witnesses independently of each other and came up with a series of drawings of the craft that were identical. Wow. Yeah. 
with all the reports and stuff coming from our own government lately, definitely makes you wonder. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to leave you guys for today. Next time, we're going to talk about the Mac Daddy Grand Marshal of the Bridgewater Triangle Parade, the Hockamock Swamp. So make sure you tune in again next week for the wildest stories of all. In the meantime, you can check us out on Instagram and threads at FantasticHPod or shoot us an email at FantasticHistoryPod at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you're using. And we'll see you next week. Later. Later.